Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 26. Uh, have your Bibles uh, ready and in Acts because this sermon, we're coming to the end of our series on Paul. We have like three, uh, maybe four. Um, we'll do a Christmas sermon from Paul writings, but um, we're coming to the final years of his life, and I'll be reading most of the sermon. We'll be looking at Acts, and we'll be reading through it together. Um, for our scripture reading, however, I'll be read Acts 26, 24 to 29. Hear now the word of the Lord. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Father, we pray that the words that we hear, the words that are preached would draw us closer to you. And that your spirit would speak to our hearts now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been following the life and the theology of the Apostle Paul. And as we finish up our series, we're going to be looking at his final years. And to do that, we're going to be looking in Acts. Uh, up until this time, we've covered a lot of ground. Maybe you remember we began in approximately A.D. 34, and Paul was busy persecuting Christians uh, until he had this encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, which we read about in Acts chapter 9, and, and we read about it as well in our passage this morning. You'll see, well, after this Damascus road experience where Paul is struck blind, he's brought to Ananias, and his sight is restored, and Ananias ministers to him, and then Paul goes away for three years for prayer and study, where he spends time uh, literally with the Lord alone. And then he returns to Damascus, and he preaches the gospel there in Damascus after those three years of study with Paul, I mean, excuse me, with Jesus, and he's driven out due to persecution. Well, the year is now 36 A.D., and for the next eight years, Paul preaches in Tarsus and the surrounding area until he's invited by Barnabas to teach in Antioch. And then in A.D. 46, he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas to bring a, a famine relief offering. And see, that brings us to his missionary journeys. And we find them in Acts. Paul went on three different missionary journeys. Sometime around AD 47 to 49, he takes his first journey. He's with Barnabas to Cyprus and Galatia. At that time, he writes the book of Galatians and is also when the Jerusalem Council meets. That's Acts chapter 15. That's when that takes place. 
Well, AD 50 to 52, Paul has a falling out with Barnabas over uh, Mark, and he begins his second missionary journey, this time with Silas. And he goes through Asia Minor and Greece, and then he settles in Corinth, and there he writes his two letters to the Thessalonians during that time. After this, he visits Jerusalem and Antioch briefly, and then begins his third missionary journey in A.D. 53, and that, and that journey lasts four years. And during that four years, he writes First and Second Corinthians, and he writes the letter to Romans. And that brings us to May of A.D. 57, and that's called his imprisonment period. Um, for 11 years, starting in Acts 21, Paul goes through a series of legal trials He arrives in Jerusalem and is seized by the Jews in the temple area and tried before the Sanhedrin. In Acts 23, we're we're told that he's taken to Caesarea. And in Acts 24, we have described for us his trial before Governor Felix, and Paul makes his defense. And at that time, no action is taken on what to do with Paul. Well, Felix ends up getting called back to Rome, and in his place, a governor is put in place named Festus, and he is appointed. And that brings us to Acts 25. And in Acts 25, verse 8, the governor Festus uh, wants to do the Jews a favor. And he said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong. And as You yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not speak to escape death. I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Well, then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. See, Paul knew... He understood that if he went to, before the Sanhedrin court in Jerusalem, he had no shot of winning. And they were going to accuse him. They were going to find him guilty no matter what. And uh, so he exercises his right under Roman law to have, uh, they would have exercised their right under Roman law to have Paul put to death for being a heretic. And Paul understood this. And so Paul invokes a law that had been in place for hundreds of years. As one writer states, he invoked the right of Roman citizenship. He had the right, as a Roman citizen, to appeal to Caesar. And he wanted to have his case heard before the emperor himself. And the emperor, at that time, was Nero. He was the first major persecutor of the church. And so here's Paul. He's about to be sent to Rome. However, there's a delay. We're told about it in verse 13 of Acts 25. King Agrippa II and his sister Bernice visit Caesarea. And King Agrippa wants to hear all about this case regarding Paul. And so this delay, he's not sent to Rome, and the king meets with Festus, and Festus explains to him the situation with the apostle Paul. And so here's this meeting Um, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. Now, to get all this in order, I know it's hard to follow. Felix left. Festus took over. Now the king's arrived, and and Festus is explaining that there was a prisoner here named Paul, and Felix left them. 
And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. And so they, they failed to make their case against Paul. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserted was alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And so now, Festus just explains this to Agrippa, and Agrippa says, I would like to hear Paul myself. Tomorrow, Festus says, you will hear him. And that brings us to our text this morning, Acts 26. Now, the next day, Agrippa meets Paul and says to him, you have permission to speak For yourself. And so Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. This is the third time Paul's made his defense. Once before Felix, and then Felix left. Festus comes in. Two years later, he makes it before Festus. And now he's standing before King Herod Agrippa II. He's the eighth and the last ruler in the great dynasty of the Herods. And, and he begins in a very traditional way. He stretches out his hand. Um, and, and that's the way you would have started. But the fact that it's mentioned here tells us something. It tells us that Luke, who's recording Acts, is there. He sees the gesture. And so you can imagine this scene before him. The king is decked out in his royal vestments. You have, along with him, you have his sister Bernice wearing all her finery. And then they have all these dignitaries there and authorities, his, his, his clan, you could say, his entourage. And they're all entering in to hear from Paul. And so you have this beauty and this pageantry. And then on the other side, you have the prisoner Paul. Now, we only have one description of Paul. It's in the Apocrypha. It's called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. It's an apocryphal book. It's the story of this young girl who's converted by Paul. And in that book, in this historical book, it's not Scripture, but in a historical book, there's a description of the Apostle Paul. Here he is. He was a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked. You know, you get the contrast that's going on here, right? On one side is the beauty and the glory and the royalty and the majesty. And the other side, there's the ugliness and the commonness of a prisoner. But then there's another contrast, another contrast. John Stott tells us about it. He says, on the one side, you have the holy and the humble apostle of Jesus Christ standing before the representative of the worldly, ambitious, morally corrupt family of the Herods. 
the Herods who for generation after generation set themselves against the truth and against righteousness. Remember the founder of the Herod dynasty? He, he was the one who had all the infants killed, trying to kill baby Jesus. And so the scene is set here. You have this small, hook-nosed, eyebrows-meeting little man. He's in chains against the worldly royalty. And as Luke looks on, he records this whole defense of the apostle. Now, from verse 2 to verse 29, we have Paul's final speech and his final response to the comments and the questions of both Festus and King Agrippa. All of it is carefully constructed according to normal rhetoric, um, the rules of rhetoric. That's what's happening here. There's a complimentary introduction in the first few verses, and then there's this personal narrative in the middle, and then Paul makes his final appeal. That's how it's laid out. And so you see the complimentary introduction, verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that I am before you, King Agrippa, I'm, I, that I'm before you making my defense today against the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversy of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Paul isn't patronizing him. He, he isn't trying to flatter the king. He's being sincere, and he's stating the facts. He knew Agrippa, Agrippa is Jewish. So he would have some knowledge of what he talks about. And, and Paul knows that what he's about to say is vitally important. Not just to save himself from death, uh, but also to save King Agrippa from death, eternal death. And so he begs him, listen patiently to me. And that leads to his personal narrative. And this is kind of divided into four sections. First, in verses 4 to 8, he talks about his upbringing as a Pharisee. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. People knew who Paul was. The Jews knew. The ones that were accusing him knew of his upbringing. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God our fathers, to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raised the dead? Paul's argument basically is this. I have not departed from Judaism. He isn't preaching heresy as the Jews accuse him of. He is proclaiming the fulfillment of the Jewish scripture in Christ. That's why the Bible we believe in consists in both the Old and New Testament. One writer stated it this way, the tragedy of Israel is not merely that they refuse to accept the New Testament, but that they refuse to accept the New Testament because they fundamentally failed to understand and submit to the Old Testament. For the religion of the Old Testament is essentially a religion of promise. Paul says in verse 6, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. You see, Christianity, Paul's saying, is not a blasphemous denial of the faith of Israel. 
It's its true inheritance. It's its long-promised fulfillment. It's its greatest day. That is what's happening. And so for the Jew to become a Christian means affirming the Old Testament, not denying it. So the Old Testament isn't the Jewish Bible and the New Testament, the Christian Bible. The Old Testament and the New Testament are the Christian's Bible, both together. It is a Christian book. And see, that leads us to the second and third part of Paul's speech. In verses 9 to 11, he talks about his past, his persecuting of Christians. And then he talks about his past again in verses 12 to 18 when he talks about his conversion and his commission to preach the gospel. Now, I've referred to this in previous sermons. This is what Paul says, beginning in verse 9. I would myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. He locked up many of the saints, he says, in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I, ca- I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in the foreign cities. We've heard this before. We went over his testimony. And this connection, he then goes on to tell, I journeyed to Damascus and I had the commission of the chief priest to go out and, and arrest people, remember? At midday, and now he's going to proclaim to the king, O king, he says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, and brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And, and when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice in the Hebrew language saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, what we have here is obvious. We've gone over this. That's why I just read it quickly. It's his Paul's testimony. He begins with his personal experience. Let's remember that. We have a tendency, and and rightly so, to emphasize the importance of our doctrine of salvation and theology and and sharing the actual gospel. Your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony is what, what, what changed in you because of the gospel. But Paul begins with his testimony here. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what Paul does he, he starts with who he was before, and he was this faithful Pharisee, and he believed in the Old Testament, and, um, and, and then because of that and the change that took place, he could testify, it shouldn't be surprising that God raises the dead. He shares how he persecuted the church, and, and which set the stage for this experience that he had where, where he encounters the risen Lord. That's his experience. That's not all our experiences. And, and so he shares his experience, and then they see the change that took place. 
Now remember, when Festus was explaining the story to Agrippa, he said that the Jews had certain points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's chapter 25, verse 19. And so what Paul's doing is explaining how that came about, how he personally became a believer. He was an enemy of Christians. He did not believe Jesus was resurrected, but now he does because why? Because Jesus appeared to him. And because of what he saw and and what he heard, he had no choice but to obey and bear witness to the truth of the resurrection. And that leads to Paul's speech. That's in verses 19 to 23, where he talks about his obedience and about being a witness. Look there. So he explains all that happened in his past and how he encountered Jesus and what he was sent for. Therefore, verse 19, O King Agrippa, I was not disappointed to the heavenly vision, uh, uh, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help of the, that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And so Paul here explains what he's been up to. Up until this moment, meeting the king, what he's been up to since that encounter on Damascus Road, how he, he preached both to Jew and Gentile. What did he preach? That they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in accordance with their repentance. He explains how he preach, his preaching is nothing more than that what the prophet and what Moses taught and said would come to pass. What are those things? That Christ must suffer, that he would rise, and then he would proclaim light to all the people. It's kind of like, as an example, one one writer says, a preacher says, it's kind of like Luther, or Luther's kind of like Paul, but it's kind of like Luther during the Reformation. At the time of the Reformation, Luther's teachings were challenged by the Roman Catholic Church. And, And their challenge was that he changed theology. It was new doctrine. And, and this was Luther's response. We teach no new thing. We teach no new thing, he said, but we repeat and establish old things. That's what he argued. We're only saying what the church father said. We're only saying what the apostle said. We're only saying what the prophet said. We're only saying what the patriarch said. Our history, our roots go all the way back to Moses and the prophets. That's what Luther argued, and that's what Paul argues in our passage. What did the prophets of Moses say would happen? And that's what he mentions here. Three events. The Moses and the prophets mentioned that Christ would suffer, the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and that third, he would proclaim light to the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, Paul has all the Old Testament in mind, and we don't have time to go through the whole Old Testament. And so we're going to focus where I believe Paul was putting his focus, and that is in the prophet Isaiah. 
See, the prophet Isaiah presents Jesus as the suffering servant of the Lord, that he would suffer. That's what Paul tells us here. Well, Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Christ would suffer. But he would also raise and be highly exalted. Isaiah 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Isaiah 53, 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He will be victorious. Why? Why will he be victorious? This is what the verse says. Because he poured out his soul to death, because he was numbered with the transgressors, because he bore the sin of many. See, the suffering servant would conquer the grave. And then, conquering the grave, he would become a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. Isaiah 60, verses 2 and 3, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come. Come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Paul's message to the king was the Old Testament promise of a crucified, risen, and exalted Lord. He remained faithful to that message even before governors, even before kings. And these governors and these kings thought Paul was crazy. They did. Look at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, now I just said all the things he said. I know it's a lot and hard to keep up, but nobody here went, man, Drew's just crazy. Festus said with a loud voice, he's talking to King Agrippa, but Festus jumps in, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. See, beloved, when the world hears our message, our testimony, they're not usually impressed. They think we've gone crazy. You know, think about it. We do sound a little crazy. We believe that a baby was born of a virgin. And not just a baby born of a virgin. We talk about the baby who is God and man. We talk about salvation that comes because this God-man, the king, was crucified and buried and then rose again. And then we say it was because of his blood that our sins are washed away. Uh, Oh, by the way, he's going to come again in the clouds and take us up into heaven to be with himself. We teach these things, we believe something, these things, and the world does think we're a little crazy. And when you think about it, but see, those who have been lost in the depths of sin and then later have come to Christ for salvation, kind of like Paul, because they met their Savior, we don't think they're crazy. We say, that makes perfect sense, as did Paul. 
When we speak of such things, we do it not because we're crazy. The reason we do it is because God himself changed our hearts and minds, and now we're saved. We simply believe the Bible and take God at his true, Paul says, and rational word. Look at verse 25. I am not out of my mind. I am not out of my mind, but I am speaking true and rational words. See, Paul says this elsewhere. Here's the bottom line for us. We believe, therefore we speak. We believe in a truth, in true, rational words, and therefore we proclaim them. That's what Paul does. And then he does something really bold. He, he pits Agrippa, King Agrippa, against Festus. He puts them in a difficult position. Uh, after responding to Festus, he turns to Agrippa. He says, look, I, I'm not mad. I'm just speaking true and rational words. And he turns to Agrippa. And remember, he knows that Agrippa has a Jewish background. And this is what he says. For the king knows about these things, and, I, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And one writer tells us that this would have been very embarrassing for King Agrippa. If he all of a sudden believed and said, hey, you're right, Paul, tell me how to become a Christian, he would look like a fool. Paul confronts him. Paul's facing possible death, but he confronts the king before Festus, before his sister, before this royal entourage. Only someone who's actually had an encounter with the risen Christ and is filled with the Spirit would have such courage in this situation, would have such boldness. But Paul is ready. He is ready. Why? Because Paul is not concerned with his own death. He's not. He's not worried if he dies. He's already died to self. He's not worried. He was concerned for Agrippa's life. And so despite them mocking him, despite them making fun of him, he was willing to take a stand. And see, we need the same boldness to be able to look at the world who thinks we're crazy and say, repent. These are true and rational words. Well, how does Agrippa respond? Verse 28, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul responds back, well, the shorter long I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these change. There was a lot on the line for Agrippa, as I've been saying. Uh, one, per, one preacher puts it this way, he had to give up position, pride, and price, First, his position. Remember, King Agrippa was a king. If all of a sudden he had this prisoner who persuaded him that he was wrong, he would have looked like a fool and they would have attacked him. One writer says, like rabid wolves, they would have been on top of King Agrippa if he would have given in, if he would have turned. His Roman superiors would have rejected him. Then there's pride. Uh, Roman governor um, Festus was in the room that day. 
His sister was in the room. All the dignitaries are in the room. If he would have accepted Jesus as his Savior, he would have lost face with them. They didn't believe, and if he would have believed, he could not allow them to see him confess his sins and bow down to this invisible Christ just because a prisoner said he rose from the grave. And so Agrippa's pride would not allow him to bow down. He was, not, he was way too smart for that. He wasn't going to give up his position. And then there's the price. He would have lost his position. But he, he saw Paul standing there or kneeling there, whichever it was, in chains. He heard of Paul's beatings. He knew of the imprisonment. He knew the scars that he, that he had because of following Jesus. And if he would have come to faith, he would have had to give that up. And it was too much of a price for him to pay position, pride, and price. And so despite Paul's pleading with him, he does not repent. And see, here's the thing. Agrippa represents millions of people. Think about it. When the supernatural gospel of a crucified but risen Savior is proclaimed, a gospel that demands that we turn from sin and begin to show our, our conversion by our good works, the things we do. The world puts up barriers and, and it rejects our message for the same three reasons. They're afraid of losing their status in the world. There's position. They, they think they're too smart to believe in an invisible Christ. It's their pride. And they don't want to give up their sin. They don't want to give up their enjoyment. I remember somebody saying that to me. How's it feel to know everybody else is having fun? All of a sudden, and you're not, Drew. It was too big of a price to pay to listen to the gospel. And so let me address those of you here. Uh, or maybe, maybe you're online, and you haven't repented of your sin, and you haven't turned to Christ. You haven't accepted the crucified and risen Lord. This is your heart. I've just described your heart to you. You know it's true. Position doesn't allow you. Pride and price don't allow you to bow the knee to Jesus. I am not going to let this South Jersey boy tell me what's right and wrong. I'm smarter than him. Jesus says this. Listen to him, not me. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet he forfeits his soul? And so Paul's plea to Agrippa is my plea. Repent. Repent and, and turn to God. And out of that repentance, out of that conversion, out of knowing that, that Christ has entered your life, begin to do good works in keeping with your repentance. Live for him. Put the old ways behind you. Well, this uh, dramatic scene ends with the verdict. Look at verse 30. Then the king rose and the governor, and Bernice, and you kind of get that, you've probably seen this in tons of movies, TV, you know, where the king gets up and then everybody's following, and um, who were sitting with them, they stand up, and when they had left, when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And they all agreed, Paul may be mad, he may be a nutcase, but he wasn't a criminal, and Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, let me close with this. 
How do you think Paul responds to that comment? This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Did Paul's plan backfire? Remember, he appealed to Caesar because he thought he'd be killed by the Sanhedrin, but here the king would have let him go. If he hadn't appealed to Caesar, he'd be out free, scot-free, but no, he appealed. Was he wrong for doing that? Did he make a mistake? Should he go back on his words? Could you mind, wait a minute before you go. I, I changed my mind. How about you just set me free? Well, the answer's obvious. It's obvious. Paul welcomed the opportunity to stand before Caesar. He, as Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 10, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Jesus said that in Matthew 10. Here we are with Paul, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And remember what he specifically told Paul. The Lord stood near him. This is Acts 23, verse 11. Keep up your courage, he says to Paul. For just as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must bear witness also in Rome. Paul wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome because Christ wanted him to go to Rome. That's why. And this is how it was to happen. If it had to be this way, so be it. Paul will go to Rome. He won't know the outcome. No one may believe him ever. The same that happened here may happen there. Maybe worse. Maybe they'll kill him. And we know later that Paul is martyred for his faith. But despite the outcome, it was Paul's mission to tell people about Jesus. And here's the point. Here's the point. I think it was the same point made in the beginning of the series on Paul. That's our responsibility too. It's your responsibility you're responsible to tell people about Jesus. Remember, you can share your testimony. I, I, I believed, you know, I was raised in a Christian home, and I didn't believe it at first, and then I believed there. Or I, I grew up a Christian, and, and, and then you tell them, and then you share the gospel. And people may look at you and say, that's crazy, and, and you're out of your mind. Or they may just ignore you and mock you. They, they may persecute you even. But here's the thing. We have the words to life, true and rational words, supernatural words in the, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we're called, like Paul, it may not be before kings, it may not be before presidents or governors, but we're called to confront whoever God places in our way and tell them about the gospel and plead with them, repent, repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with your repentance. That is your call. You may not be the apostle Paul but you're called to proclaim the good news of Jesus to everyone you meet. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would enable us to be bold in our proclamation of the good news, the true news, the rational truth of the gospel. Amen.